Vader's shuttle has arrived. Vader, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. Yo, G, I be here to see why your homies ain't working their booties off. I assure you, Lord Vader, my men are working as fast as they can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down. I tell you, this station will be operational as planned. Well, the man don't think so, and he be cruising down here to check out this ride. The Empress coming here? Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this be CNN. Listening to 90.7 FM. I'm Franklin and this is Berkeley Grocks. Coming up on today's show, sake and dolphins. Also joining us again is Dr. Arthur Rosenfeld on California and International Energy Development. So stay tuned for all this here on the Grok Science Show. And joining us again this week is the wonderful Terry Ann Yen and Vikram Kulkarni. The sake that you drink now may now be used in cars as uh, part of the craze to find alternative energy sources. So people have been starting to use ethanol, right? Yeah. As a right. method of decreasing carbon emissions fuels. and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the government in Japan has now funded a pilot project to look into rice-based ethanol, basically sake, for cars. So it's become a real rice rocket, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You actually have a true rice rocket. Yeah, and this is going to be undertaken in this little town, this little village called Shinanomachi. It's about 125 miles northwest of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And it's going to start out with the farmers there donating their rice hulls. Okay. Because as you can okay. imagine... With sushi, Japan eats a lot of rice. Yes. I mean. yep. So rice is basically one of their major crops. But the unfortunate part is that for one gallon of ethanol to be made, you need 17 pounds of rice. So I'm not mm. entirely sure mm. how effective this is going to be. I also yeah. have qualms about just the usage of ethanol right. as an alternative right. fuel source. Right. There's actually a lot of yeah. discussion going on as to whether it's what's impact is in terms of say you know water resources um also on food because i mean it's def- it's definitely going to displace the corn that we eat that's yeah right. the yeah the u.s is trying to look into corn and mexico is now having protests corn. because their tortillas are so expensive because oh they're my made gosh. from corn so there's a number of issues that have to be examined but i mean right. if for example this rice hull 
it's like waste material that they're just recycling, then that's perfect because basically they're just taking stuff that would have otherwise been yeah like, exactly been wasted. But I think the main argument pro argument there is that this is all renewable, right? Yes, We're, it's all yes. renewable as opposed to fossil fuels. It is fuels, very renewable, which is, true. Right. Yes, you know, so right. As, that's the only good part. But the part with ethanol is that there's still going to be a significant amount of carbon. Yeah, there's emissions is still a problem. Oh, yeah, this is yeah. not the perfect fill. And actually, uh, there's different types of emission problems with ethanol because now you're going to get, you know, um, some acids and some aldehydes. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly, these are just like yeah. um, slight, you know, these are incomplete burns of the uh, ethanol. And some of this stuff is pretty nasty, actually. I mean, uh, I think Brazil is now having some problems with the, their air quality because now they have like oh these yeah they're using sugar acidic, cane uh, stuff right. coming out of the tailpipes not not yeah. yeah like not completely combusted uh, right. uh, byproducts right are. so oh, I mean yeah. it's gonna take a while to find out what the real impacts are but um, it's certainly something that people have not um, examined very carefully and right. they should and th- then you're gonna have some college students increase their uh, driving under the influence records uh-huh. <laughs> because oh, yeah. somebody's going to try and figure out how to put a straw in the fuel tank eventually. <laughs> so well, I mean, that's, obviously that's one it's problem as well. not going to be pure sake. Sake is actually fermented rice. Isn't this going to be the same? Yeah, but I think it might be a different... It must be different. I'm not quite sure how sake is made and how ethanol is going to... This mm-hmm. type of ethanol, ethanol from rice right, is going to be produced. Right. I don't know if it's going to be edible or <laughs> Right. I mean, technically, ethanol is edible. I mean, you know, except that it's, like, has no taste whatsoever. But uh, but it's horribly, you know... I mean, it'll, it'll put your blood alcohol, That's like, shoot it up. Too. Shoot up real fast. So, not good for you. <laughs> right. So, if anyone wants to find out more... Um, you can read it in, I think, this issue, the May issue of CNE and News. One of the May issues. All right, so one last story from the ocean. Dolphins. Yay, dolphins. Yay. So do you talk to dolphins? Yes, I just have one swimming in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> we have deep philosophical uh, conversations. They they do chat back at you though. I mean, whenever you see them in theme parks, you know, dolphins are the you know the most. Oh yeah, they're very social ones. animals. Yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. And it turns out they have accents too. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> the French, perhaps. Yeah. Well, actually, even among the uh, the UK dolphins, they have uh, a lot of distinction. So. Uh, what some scientists have found out is that dolphins living off of Wales and dolphins living off of Ireland have different dialects. Really? Yes. Uh, and it's based on the type of sounds and whistles that um, these dolphins emit. And, you know, one set of dolphins, say, in Ireland will use a certain set of sounds while the other set will use a, a That's cool. different uh, sets of, of these uh, sounds that are not, you know, are not using each other, so that's really cool. Yeah. So, so they're they're basically uh, unintelligible to the other group. Is that what you're saying? Or like I don't know if they're unintelligible. I mean, intelligible among the groups, but I mean, these groups show very distinct uh, sets of type of. You know, so I wonder if you sounds. placed a dolphin that's found off the coast of Ireland uh-huh. with a dolphin that's found off the coast of Britain, uh-huh. will they be able to communicate with each other? That that's very interesting. I mean, it's possible if they're not. You know, like humans, I'm sure, like, if there's not too different, they might be able to right. get by. But if they're very different, then they may just not communicate at all. 
Right. That's because, I mean, funny. Because it's saying accents. That's what I was uh, trying to ask. Whether it's like a, you know, the languages means it's like completely different. Whereas accents means probably they're like close but not really there. Right. Right. So that's that's yeah, that, very interesting. Those are interesting. But I mean, it shows that you know humans are not the only um, species that have uh, right variety in their language. Not at all. I mean, the more I read these days, I mean, humans, I think, need to get over themselves. They they think way too much about themselves. A lot of animals are pretty darn close. So uh, I guess if anyone wants to know a little more, uh, this is work carried out by Simon Barrow at the Shannon Dolphin and Wildlife Foundation. Hey, thanks a lot, Terry and Vikram. And that concludes our weekly news in the world of science and technology. This is Burke Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Dr. Arthur Rosenfeld joins us again to talk about energy development in California. Back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, Dr. Arthur Rosenvold joins us again to continue our discussion on energy development. Uh, Dr. Rosenfeld is the California Energy Commissioner and was last year's recipient of the Enrico Fermi Award from the Department of Energy. And to continue our discussion, uh, I was wondering, why does the U.S. have such a high global footprint? Uh, why does it have much higher emissions per person than, say, Europe? What I think I want to do is to compare it not only with the U.S., but with uh, California. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk uh, in a moment about what I would call the, the California success story. But um, in terms of Europe versus uh, the United States, Europe, of course, is uh, a multitude of countries. But if I t- sort of take the, the center of gravity, uh, like Austria and Denmark, of uh, tons of CO2 per dollar of uh, gross national product, uh, or it's equally good to say tons of CO2 per person. Uh, they Both measures give you about the same thing. California and most of Europe are at about a third of a ton of CO2 per dollar, uh, whereas the United States is at about two-thirds of a ton per dollar and uh, is worse only than, uh, and the only people who are worse are uh, Canada and Australia, uh, who have a lot of natural resources and mm-hmm. burn a lot of energy. So uh, we're, California, along with Western Europe, is about twice as good, which brings me to a pretty important policy point, and that is that 
California take, was the state which took rational use of electricity most seriously after the embargo. We put in three things, four things. Uh, we put in standards for new buildings. Uh, we started with standards for appliances, which after Reagan left office were taken up by the federal government, but the battle was two-thirds solved before them. And we encouraged our utilities to conserve electricity and to do big uh, energy efficiency programs in which they will do anything they can to beat the standards. They will give you design assistance. They will give you incentives to buy Energy Star refrigerators or Energy Star appliances. Uh, they give manufacturers uh, rebates directly, like we pay any manufacturer in the world about two bucks per fluorescent lamp sold in the state of California. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, and the utilities contribute to updating the energy standards and the uh, appliance standards. Uh, for example, in the last few years, uh, something that's fairly dramatic, we have uh, required that if a new house, we have a he heavy air conditioning loads in California, of course, mm -hmm. and if a new house is built with a flat roof where there are no house or commercial building, uh, let's say commercial building is built with a flat roof where there are no architectural issues because you can't see the roof from the street, that roof is now required to be white, which reduces the air conditioning load by 20% and costs nothing more than a dark roof, and incidentally keeps our communities cooler because all the air doesn't blow over the roof and get hot. And we're doing something which is very high-tech starting in 2008 with the new building standards. We're taking advantage of the fact that uh, uh, pigment manufacturers, manufacturers of uh, roofing material like tiles and metal roofs and shingles uh, have discovered, uh, thanks to uh, a lot of work at Lawrence Berkeley Lab supported by the California Energy Commission have discovered that um, there are many pigments around which are uh, traditional colors in the visible, but which are very cool in the near infrared where half of the sun's energy comes in. Mm -hmm. And those are called cool colored roofs, and uh, they reduce the air conditioning load at zero expense by about 10%. Uh, those will be required on new buildings. And in fact, uh, uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab is now working with the automobile companies to put cool colors on all cars so that you can downsize the air conditioner and save several miles per gallon in fuel economy and reduce the first cost of the car because the air conditioner is smaller and the cost of the new pigment is almost negligible. So there are just many, many things one can do in that direction. So let's talk a little bit about economics. There was a PCAST report in 1997 which uh, purported that the returns on investment for efficiency was something on the order of uh, 40 to 1. Um, 40 to 1 sounds like a return on research. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, y yes, uh, there are many examples where the, the payback time for a clever research turns out instead of being measured in 40 years for uh, a uh, new power plant, it uh, turns out to be measured in units of 40 days or a month. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can give you some examples of that. Uh, I will give you an example of that before I go on to give you the average California experience. But... Um, uh, here is an example that's right current and where we're just adopting standards for what are called standby. Uh, what I like to call vampires, these are the little external power supplies that are plugged into the wall and that power your cordless phone and your fax machine and your computer and your garage door opener and uh, so on and on into all your power tools and your toothbrush mm -hmm. and so on and on into the night. Now, it turns out that if I measure the demand by your house uh, on a nice spring morning when neither the air conditioner nor the heater should be running and only the air conditioner sh and only the refrigerator should be cycling, 
Uh, I would expect 40 or 50 watts from the refrigerator, but I find another uh, 70 AE watts full-time, which is used by all these uh, vampires. In the past, they were so small, they're three watts each, that nobody bothered to pay any attention to them. Mm -hmm. But there are, I think, something like 10 billion of them uh, in the United States. And uh, they now amount to a drain of 10% of uh, residential and commercial power. What we discovered is that by going to modern switching-type power supplies, electronic power supplies, instead of the old-fashioned ones with magnets and uh, diodes, that uh, we can reduce the manufacturer at a cost of maybe 5 or 10 cents, uh, can reduce the uh, energy use of these things from a few watts to less than half a watt. We're, in fact, requiring less than half a watt for the 2008 standards. Mm -hmm. uh, this will save uh, maybe 50 base load power plants in the United States, and the payback time for the extra to, to pay for the extra power supply is, in fact, about one month, and the power supply lasts for 10 years. So for nine years and 11 months, you're laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> now, uh, you, you asked about uh, big, big, big programs. So, for example, in California uh, these days, our utilities get money from your utility bill called public goods charges, which amounts to $700 million a year which turns out to be about 2% of your electricity bill. And they use that money to, as I repeat, uh, to do anything which will help beat the standards, like incentives on refrigerators, like design assistance on new buildings, like uh, training building inspectors and so forth and so on. Um, the total cost of conserving a kilowatt hour in that program is last year was 3.3 cents, whereas the electricity that you saved averages 12 cents, and if you're saving electricity on a hot afternoon, it averages 26 cents. So I would say that the number is more like 5 to 1 and not 40 to 1, but that's, of course, for huge programs of incentives. Mm -hmm. It's not for clever research, which can do much better. Great. So I understand one of your current projects is to engage with... Um researchers and policymakers uh, in China and India, which are the two fastest-growing economies. Could you tell us, um, you know, what is our interest in the U.S. to collaborate with foreign countries? Well, of course, our interest in the United States for collaborating with China is just huge because they're, we're both competing for bidding up oil prices and uh, bidding up natural gas prices. And as that oil and natural gas is burned, we're contributing uh, gigatons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere mm -hmm. and advancing global warming. So clearly, we want to use less energy in the United States, and they want to use less energy in China. Now, the uh, ideas that we've been selling in China, I have, in fact, made several, I guess I'll call them pilgrimages to China, along with uh, other uh, commissioners from the Public Utilities Commission and uh, with high-level representatives from the California Utilities who are so expert at disseminating this advice. And um, what we've tried to do to the Chinese is to encourage them 
to go in for a more efficient buildings. Uh, in the United States, buildings use two-thirds of all electricity. So uh, if you're worried about having us not build coal plants, you need to look at building efficiency. Uh, in China, their industry is uh, a little heavier, and so I think that only about uh, a third of their uh, electricity goes to buildings, but it's growing very, very fast as these cities uh, sprout up. What we've, uh, I think, convinced the Chinese is that it would be uh, a good idea for them to follow in our shoes and to introduce what is called a public goods charge on electricity and natural gas, uh, which is equivalent of gasoline tax for fuel. And uh, in um, the United States, as I just mentioned, uh, we in California, as I just mentioned, we plow back about 2% of our electric bills into these energy efficiency programs. 2% sounded a little stiff to our Chinese friends, but they're now talking seriously about ramping up to 1% of the electricity plowed back into all sorts of standards enforcements, training of code inspectors, monitoring of uh, the quality of equipment, and so on. And, uh, you know, 1% a year savings may not seem so impressive for a year, but if you keep it up for 30 years and we are trying to delay global warming, you are going to save 30% of the power plants you would ordinarily have to build. So uh, we've had uh, we've had good and continuing success in China. In fact, uh, uh, a high-level Chinese is coming to visit for a week at the California Energy Commission uh, next week. To, to a certain extent, the problem with energy now is, is China and India, and the solution to a certain extent is to get them to follow the California model. And to give you an example of how successful this has been in California, if you look at electricity use per capita, California is uh, still a lot higher than China, but it's uh, been constant at 7,000 kilowatt hours per person for the last 30 years. That is, compared with 30 years ago, everything is bigger. Houses are bigger, TVs are bigger, refrigerators are bigger, appliances are bigger, and there are a lot more uh, of the TVs and computers and so on around the house. Yet we've kept our electricity use constant during all that time, and we've gotten all these new services to improve efficiency. The United States had access to the same information, didn't take it as seriously, and has gone up 2% a year every year from the last 30 years. So they started a little higher than we did at 8,000 kilowatt hours a year, but they're now up to 12,000. So they've grown 50% in electricity per use per capita while mm -hmm. we stayed constant. And so uh, if we can show the rest of the world how to knock 2% a year off of energy efficiency growth, uh, we would... Uh, just about keep our carbon dioxide level because carbon dioxide, the threat of global warming, is only growing 1.5% a year with almost no public policy. It should be possible with public policy to, to knock off, to knock that rate to zero and get our economic growth to more efficiency. That doesn't mean we're not still in trouble from global warming because the world is heating, right. but it would be an enormous release. And for those of you who just tuned in in the middle, our guest today here on Berkeley Rocks is Dr. Arthur Rosenfeld, the California Energy Commissioner. You know, as the recipient of the Fermi Award, have you been able to get more policymakers or politicians to be more attentive to these issues? Well, you know, I think I'm part of a bigger uh, soup. That is, I think uh, I would say that the primary driver is a recognition that global warming is a recognition by the mainstream that global warming is a real threat and uh, that uh, uh, energy efficiency is the surest, quickest, safest way to delay global warming. And the very fact that the Bush administration, which has not been a big enthusiast for energy efficiency in the past, worrying that uh, it would hurt the economy, the very fact that the Bush administration, the White House, decided to accept the Department of Energy's recommendation that I get the Fermi Prize uh, probably shows that they, they think that uh, 
uh, this is an idea whose time, if it's not here yet, at least is coming. And of course, yes, I'm I'm happy to be uh, quoted in everything from the New York Times to Business Week uh, as saying repetitiously what I just said, that uh, energy efficiency helps the economy. Uh, energy efficiency is defined almost precisely as, as something which is transparent and gives you your money back in five years, whereas even the best of renewables cost you something. Mm-hmm. I mean, wind is now competing with uh, natural gas as a source of electricity, right. but it's not as handy, and you have to build... Uh, extra capacity for when the wind's not blowing and so on. So all these new supplies are at best only a little bit more expensive than the old supplies, whereas energy efficiency, as we just said, is uh, uh, typically five times cheaper. So I was reading that the DOE had disbanded their uh, advisory committee. Um, do you know if that's some, anything related to the president's policies? I, I don't know the details of why the uh, DOE advisory committee of scientists was disbanded. I I know that you're correct. It seems as if uh, the White House and the high levels of the Department of Energy have uh, uh, pretty much made up their mind that where they want to put their money is on renewables and uh, the hydrogen economy, which is a little far off, Mm -hmm. and just uh, are ignoring and cutting a budget for energy efficiency. Okay, and lastly, I, I guess I just want to refer to the uh, the graph you showed me earlier about how um, by not pursuing the business as usual course, we had actually saved 70 quads of energy each year. And um, in terms of measuring this against the GDP, we're actually uh, experiencing a 2.1% greater efficiency. Yeah, could you comment on, on the uh, overall I sure trend will. Here? It's, uh, it's uh, one of my favorite topics. If you take the United States as a whole, in the year 1973, when uh, OPEC w- awakened us and started us thinking about energy policy, the United States economy was using uh, 75 units called quad. And you don't have to remember what a quad is, but you do have to remember 75 for one second. <laughs> As we've grown, and this is U.S. as a whole, not not California, as we've grown, uh, we are now at 100 quads. But if we had stayed frozen at the efficiencies of 1973 while our GMP grew, uh, we would be at 200 quads instead of 100. And even if you take what had been the previous business-as-usual rate of improvement, because technology does always make us a little more energy efficient every year by maybe half a percent, Mm -hmm. if you take business-as-usual, we would still be at 170 quads. From that, I draw two very strong conclusions. Uh, The first thing is just your energy bill. Our energy bill is already $1 trillion a year, which is 9% of our economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we hadn't made these improvements compared with business as usual, we will be at uh, not $1 trillion a year, but $1.7 trillion a year. We will be paying $700 billion a year more for our energy. And that, of course, would be a terrible drain on our economy it would take energy up to 17% of our gross domestic product instead of 9%. The other thing that's pretty obvious from that is that um, we have indeed had to grow our energy supply uh, from 75 to 100 quads, uh, which is 25 units. But we've avoided having to build another uh, 70 quads, which is 70 units. So even though a little bit of that is not pure energy efficiency, it's uh, it's an acceleration of uh, structural uh, changes like going more and more rapidly from a smokestack economy to a service economy. Nevertheless, two-thirds of that change uh, seems to be straight energy efficiency, get your money back in five years. And 
it's uh, two or three times as much as we've gotten in the way of real physical supply with more steel in the ground and more power plants and more pipelines and so on. So um, uh, the decisive way to give new energy services seems to be through efficiency. And uh, in California, it's our public policy that we will invest in efficiency first, in renewables second, and in conventional power plants only third when everything else fails. Great. Well, Dr. Rosenfeld, thank you so much for your time, and congratulations again on receiving the Fermi Award. I thank you very much. Hey, thanks a lot. And that was Dr. Arthur Rosenfeld, the California Energy Commissioner. And that's all for this week's edition of the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. Stay tuned for more music here on KALX.